Please open the Holy Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 4. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. Let me read to you in Hebrews chapter 4, the last five verses of the chapter. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me emphasize again the 16th verse of Hebrews 4. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not a salvation text. Unless you were to say it is a salvation text of the practical phase. This is written to those who are already partakers of the heavenly calling. Chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that. The song we just sang about the throne of God... And the stream that proceeds from that throne was a song about the legal work of the Lord Jesus Christ covering all the sins of a Manasseh or Mary or me. But this text is not about that. This text is built on top of that. That is the foundation work of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And having done that, He passed into the heavens where He is our high priest forevermore. 
But because He is such a good high priest, He is able to succor them that are tempted, in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted. I shall show you. I want to speak to you for a few minutes about the throne of grace. We want to consider it as a throne because we are talking about the high king of heaven who sits on that throne. We are talking about almighty God as king of the universe. So we have the word throne because throne is something you'll never sit on unless you're one of God's elect and you make it to heaven by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ then you'll sit with Him in His throne. It says that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But we want to recognize that it is a throne of grace. There is grace, which is demerited favor. It is blessings undeserved. It is kindness you have not earned. It is help when you are weak. It is hope When you are hopeless, because the king on that throne will help you in your time of need if you come unto him in a practical way by worship and prayer, by love and by service. His throne is accessible and we can go to the God of the universe boldly because we have at his right hand a savior, which is Christ the Lord, who knows our every weakness And who knows our every trial because he experienced them himself. He had the feeling of our infirmities is no strange thing to him. You have never been deserted like the Lord Jesus Christ was deserted. You have never suffered physical pain like the Lord Jesus Christ suffered physical pain. You have never felt that God had deserted you like the Lord Jesus Christ felt that God had deserted him. You have never been discouraged by the unfaithfulness and weakness and folly of others like he was discouraged by the folly of his very own disciples. And we could multiply that list indefinitely. A throne of grace. I want us to enhance our prayer lives. I want us to enhance our worship by realizing that we're going to a throne right now, and it is not a throne of terror, though He is the great and terrible God. It is not a throne of dread, though He is the great and dreadful God. It is not just a throne of righteousness, though He is righteous. It is not a throne of just holiness, though He is holy. It is a throne of grace. And there is so much grace. And the high priest at his right hand is so effectual and has such a priceless sacrifice that we must go boldly to it for it to please him. Because the order is, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. This is not a suggestion, nor is it a description of better than average saints. This is a commandment for all saints. Let us, therefore, come boldly. Yes, Lord, we come. We come.
Give us strength to come with the boldness that we ought to. And teach us about Your mercy and grace. And show us the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know we have an advocate with the Father standing at Your right hand that will help us. We have such a one. He's a mighty one chosen from the people. You young men who want to learn how to read your Bibles and study them, we want the context of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, let's begin reading in Genesis 1.1. Because every verse in the Bible is part of a context of 31,101. It would take too long to start at Genesis. So we'll start at Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. And let me have a few minutes of your time before we get to the individual words of 4.16. I want to show you the context. Paul is writing Jewish believers who had been converted from Moses' system of religion to believe on Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been baptized. These are the elect of God and obedient Christians gathered in churches under ministers because Paul's going to point out their ministers in chapter 13. These are Hebrews. And they're not just any Hebrews. They are Christian Hebrews. And Paul is preaching to them to keep them from going back to worshiping under Moses because it was a severe trial of their faith to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. They lost their place in the synagogue. They lost their place in the temple. They knew the temple was God's temple. They knew the law was God's law. They knew the priests were God's priests. They knew the altar was God's altar. They knew the sacrifices were by God's order. And they left all those things. And when they left them, they were persecuted sorely and afflicted terribly by their family members and the nation Because they had deserted the nationalistic religion to follow Jesus Christ. So Paul comes along and writes this 13 chapter book and explains the superiority of the New Testament to the Old. He explains the superiority of Jesus to angels, chapters 1 and 2. The superiority of Jesus to Moses, chapter 3. The superiority of Jesus to Joshua, chapter 4. The superiority of Jesus to all the priests, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The superiority of the New Covenant to the Old Covenant, chapter 8. The superiority of the ordinances of divine service of the New Testament compared to those of the Old, chapters 9 and 10. And how if there could be a hall of faith for that pitiful religion of the Old Testament, surely we should live our lives in light of that great cloud of witnesses, chapters 11 and 12. And then he has some miscellaneous exhortations for them in chapter 13. Like, let brotherly love continue. Like, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. There's the book of Hebrews. But look at this quickly. Look, uh, if you love Jesus, you're going to love the next few minutes, I hope. Amen. Hebrews 2.9. Paul has just quoted from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 7. And he gives us the explanation of it in verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. 
Jesus was made lower than the angels because he had to get below the angels to die because angels can't die because they're immortal spirits. Once they were created, they lived forever. They're spirits. They don't have flesh and blood. They don't have a breath. Jesus was made lower than them to be like us. And he's going to repeat that in a moment, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But this is the fulfillment of Psalm 8 where it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and set him over all the works of thy hands. And when you read Psalm 8, if you're not reading intelligently, you're going to think, Yes, we have a zoo right downtown Greenville that shows that man is ruling over all the animals. Oh no, you! we've missed the glory of Psalm 8. Because we come to Hebrews 2, and beginning at about verse 6, where David starts quoting David, he tells us it is Jesus who has been promoted over all things, all brute creation, all human creation, and all angels, principalities, and powers. We see Jesus. Because Paul says, we don't yet see everything under our feet, but we see Jesus, and all things are under his feet. So that's Hebrews 2.9. Let's keep going. Verse 10, it became him. This was becoming for the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We have a captain. And he's not some 105 IQ captain of any military on earth. He's the captain, Lord Jesus Christ. He can speak the word and annihilate all captains or one captain. He is the captain of our salvation. And that's the terminology the Bible chooses. And he was made a little lower than the angels. And now he's captain over all the angels, king of kings and lord of lords. But he was made a little lower than the angels according to this text to be made like you and me. So that we can be brothers. He was made like one of us. It became him, bringing many sons to glory that he might become a great captain of salvation, be made perfect, a perfect Savior, through suffering. Through suffering. Now, we're not speaking here of suffering in a legal sense, that he suffered on the cross, and that legal transaction saved us. That's not all that's there. That is what brought us to glory, the legal transaction. But he became a perfect captain for us by suffering the way that we have to suffer, by being made lower than the angels. Verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. We're of one nature. Jesus and we are of one nature. He was made a man. He's the man Christ Jesus. He was born of a woman. He's the seed of the woman. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He can call us brethren because by nature we are brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. There's, there's a Bible quotation to prove that he calls us brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He sings, in, he sings in the church like we do. He did sing. Have you ever read about the Last Supper? And they sang in him and went out. Verse 13, and again, more quotations from the Old Testament. This would get a Hebrew's attention. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is the family relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil had the power of death over us because he got us to sin against the first commandment in the Garden of Eden, which had as a consequence, thou shalt surely die. That's how the devil had the power of death. Other than that, the devil doesn't have any power. The power is in God's justice to enforce his commandment, which the devil got our parents to break. We worked that over last Lord's Day. 
Verse 15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood to be like us so that He could die for us and deliver us from the power of death the devil had over us and deliver us from bondage and fear at the same time. There is no reason for a child of God to fear death because the bondage of it has been broken by the Lord Jesus Christ who came and willingly died in our place and rose again from the dead. And He lives forever. And as we sang, He has the keys of hell and of death. And I hope you believe that. He's got that key and He'll turn it on your behalf. Verse 16, For verily, this is of a truth, He took not on Him the nature of angels. Jesus did not come like an angel, and He did not come for the angels. But He took on Him the seed of Abraham, and Abraham was made of a woman and a man, just like we are. And the Lord Jesus Christ took on that human flesh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No wonder it's a throne of grace. Wherefore, follow with me, wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. In all things, Jesus was made like us. It behooved him to be made just like us so that he could be the best possible priest. Wherefore, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Here's the reason. That he might be a merciful Remember the word mercy. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And the word succor is to help. It's a simple synonym for help. He is able to help those that are tempted because he suffered temptation during his life. He was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by men. He was tempted by an ungodly world all around him. He was tempted by tiredness. He was tempted by hunger. He was tempted by thirst. He was tempted by challenges. He was tempted by dares. He was tempted by men trying to trap him in his words. He was tempted in every way that you've ever been tempted and a whole lot more, yet without sin. Without sin. And so it behooved him. It behooved him because we have a Savior that is like us. You, you men... I speak to you very plainly at our men's meetings. You face no temptation in your life that the Lord Jesus Christ did not face a whole lot more of. You 33-year-old men, you 30-year-old men, you 25-year-old men, you 20-year-old men, many of you have wives. Jesus had none. None of you have women following you. Jesus had a crowd of women following him all the time. Many of them were reclaimed prostitutes. They loved him dearly. What couldn't you love about the Lord Jesus Christ? The most gracious leader that had saved their relatives from death and saved them from their sins and had forgiven them most graciously, they loved him. They kissed his feet. They wept tears. They anointed his feet with perfume, expensive perfume. They loved to break bottles of perfume on him, kiss his feet, cry their tears, and wipe his feet with the hairs of their head. Now tell me about your horrible temptations. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Forget Joseph. Give me Jesus Christ. That is a sinless... You know what the Bible says about him in Hebrews 7.26? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 
He is separate from us. You know, our brother David couldn't handle five minutes of being discontent in his bed one night when he had a whole hallway with 28 wives behind separate doors. But he had to go take another man's wife. But our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, showed us how it's to be done. And I say all that, although I'm a little bit off track. But if you ever need help when you're facing a temptation, men, when you're facing a temptation, there is a throne of grace to go to to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brother, don't whine to me about Clemson University. And you don't. You don't. He doesn't. I just know that I can get away speaking like that with Mark. Don't whine about it. We ha- don't we have an example? Those co-eds haven't come and kissed your feet and broken an expensive bottle of perfume on them and wiped them with the hairs of their head. And you've got a nice wife sitting right beside you. Amen. you the Lord's taking care of you. This is, this is how you trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how you go to God and you tell God that you are facing a temptation in your life that is great, and you ask God for help in time of need. And there is one sitting at his right hand who knows the temptations yet without sin. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, This tells us that the book of Hebrews is written to the elect of God because they're called holy brethren and they're called partakers of the heavenly calling. They are all going to heaven. In general, the general general rule for these Hebrews was they're all going to heaven because Paul addressed them as such by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it says to consider the Lord Jesus Christ as our apostle and as our high priest of our profession. You Hebrew Christians, you've left the profession of being under the Levitical priesthood. You've You've left the profession of the prophets of the Old Testament, now you've got the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our apostle and our high priest. Consider him. And so then it goes to consider him and compare him to Moses for the next five verses. I want to tell you that verse 6 tells us, but Christ as a son over his own house, Moses was a slave, Christ was a son. Whose house are we? We make up Jesus Christ's house, his family. His family tree. The word house in the Bible doesn't always mean four walls and a roof. It often means... The estate, or better yet, the family tree of a man. His house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Do you want the measure of your Christianity? Do you want the proof of eternal life? Do you want to know if you're God's elect and your name is in the book of life? It's in verse 6. That's the evidential proof of whether you're a child of God or not. This is not something you have to keep up on your own power in order to make it to heaven. This is a character trait of the truly righteous. Right here. If we hold fast our confidence, we are bold about the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember that He is the Savior of our sins. We know we can go straight to God. We hold our confidence. We know we have the truth. We are not going to doubt what we have as whether the truth or not. We know it's the truth. Amen. We are not going to be tempted... Even though the religion that was competing with Christianity for these Hebrews was God's religion. Do you know how hard that was? It's why we have the book of Hebrews. It's why we have the book of Galatians and the book of Romans and part of the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. This was a horrible conflict for them. Especially with Judaizers 
trying to drive wedges in a Christian's heart and mind. It's wonderful what we have. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence? We need to come out of Egypt and stay confident that the Lord's going to be with us right across the Jordan River. Remember, the bulk of the nation, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb, they, they weakly came out of Egypt through the Red Sea, not believing they could make it. And then they wouldn't go across the Jordan River. And the Lord destroyed them in the wilderness. We can't be like that. He's about to raise that illustration over the next two chapters. First of all, we've got to hold our confidence fast. Fast doesn't mean you run around the church fast. It doesn't mean you run quickly. It doesn't mean you believe quickly. It means it's fastened to you. We hold it fastened to us and we will not let it go, nor will we change until someone confronts us with overwhelming evidence from the Bible. We will hold fast our confidence that what we have is the truth and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. There is no mixing of free will and free grace. It's either free grace or it's free will. But there is no such thing as free will, so it's only free grace. Amen. And the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Are you continuing to rejoice because of the hope God's given us? All the way to the end. The end of your life. You don't need any hope in heaven. There's no throne of grace in heaven. Once you get there, we're going to sing about it in a few minutes. It's a throne of glory. Precious thought. And I just cheated and gave it to you early. There's no throne of grace in heaven. What do you need grace for once you get there? You're glorified. It's a throne of glory. And you're going to use the grace God's given you to give Him glory for eternity. And there's enough glory there to give Him glory for eternity. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You're not going to get tired of singing it. You'll just make more verses for it. Ah, brethren, are we in verse 6? If we're not in verse 6, we should close up the book and just go home. If we're not in verse 6. Are you in verse 6? You're going to hold fast the confidence. And you're going to hold fast the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You're not going to waver. You're going to be firm. Rejoicing in the hope that God's given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes. Hebrews 3.7 all the way to 4.11 is a parenthesis. If you read it, if you read, if you read the book of Hebrews, and I'm, I, I wanted to do this because I hope that some of you read your Bibles... I hope that all of you do, but that you have a, some familiarity with the book of Hebrews. I want you to know that from 3.7 to 4.11 is a parenthesis, and it's all about Psalm 95, where the Apostle Paul invokes that generation in the wilderness that would not take the land of Canaan, and how that God had warned there was another rest coming, and that rest was Jesus Christ's finished work of salvation, that the Hebrews would leave if they went back to Moses. And so the point was, let us therefore fear, verse 1 of chapter 4, lest... A promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So I want to, I want to leave those verses because they're a parenthesis of telling about God's curse against the generation of Hebrews in the wilderness and his curse upon this generation that was now before them. And they would go back under that curse if they left Christ and they'd be cursed in that. They would be destroyed with the rest of the Hebrew nation under the Roman armies. We have a solution for the book of Hebrews that is unbelievably precious. Of all the commentaries that have been written, only a couple have any concept of it. 
And I'm thankful for them, even though one's a Methodist, Adam Clark. Thank you, Lord, for blessing a Methodist to be dead right on the general context and overflow of the book of, and, and overview of the book of Hebrews. There are some passages in Hebrews that are very difficult for most men to explain. Especially Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that if you shall fall away, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. That's a horrible sounding text. That's the number one problem text in the New Testament, according to many pastors. We have no problem with it at all. No problem with it at all. The Lord just made that as as simple as falling off a log. If you give up on Jesus Christ and fall away from Christianity and go back under Moses, you are putting yourself under the curse of God, and there is no repentance for anyone back there. For anyone back there, going, going back under Moses in 65 A.D., then there was repentance for the generation in the wilderness to repent and take the land of Canaan after they, re, after they refused it. Do you remember? Yes. They made it all the way to the River Jordan. They wouldn't take it because of ten spies that spoke evilly of the nation. Then God told them that he's going to kill them all in the wilderness. Then they said, we repent. We have sinned. We're going to go up and take the land. And Moses said, I'm staying right here in camp because God is not with you because he's already sworn in his wrath. You will not get into his rest. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Same situation. Uh, uh, Enough on that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We would be so confused with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 if it wasn't for your light and your truth that you sent out and showed us the way. Thank you. Neither Arminians nor Calvinists can deal with that text well. Precious verse. So we come to 4.12, which we read, verses 12 through 16, but I want to take you to chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. To it, because Paul is going to explain a little bit more about Jesus being a priest. I have already read to you some wonderful verses from chapter 2 about him being a priest, behooved to be made like unto us. He suffered being tempted, so he's able to succor us when we're tempted. We have verse 15 in chapter 4 that says, We don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a high priest that was touched with all the feeling of our infirmities. But let's get a little bit more about that in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is how all priests need to be chosen. And what's being talked about here is not Catholic priests, nor priests of Baal. These are Levitical priests. Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That's, That's the job of a priest. He does things... For you, toward God. And he offers gifts and sacrifices. Verse 2, who can have compassion on the ignorant. See, if you get someone like yourself, he can have compassion on your ignorance, and he can have compassion on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Because he knows his temptations in the flesh, he knows his weaknesses, he can relate to the ignorance and the weaknesses and the falling and the stumbling of those around him that come to him. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. The the Levitical priests had to go offer sacrifices for their own sins, then for the sins of the people, because they were all sinners together. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. 
Now, hopefully you can understand from those first three verses in light of chapter 4 that Jesus Christ is a priest like that because he was made like us. And so in every way he can have compassion on the ignorant. He can have compassion on those that are out of the way, yet without sin. Because he suffered temptation, he can feel all of our infirmities, yet without sin. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So he's a perfect priest. Amen. Except he can see a little closer, can he? He can see to the separation of your soul and your spirit. Can you give me an explanation between the difference between your soul and your spirit? How about your joints and your marrow? Can you discern the thoughts and intents of your heart? That is a priest. But I'm not done with chapter 5. Verse 4, no man taketh his honor unto himself. No man chose to be a priest. A couple men tried to choose to be priests in the Bible, and the Lord burned them up in a hurry, didn't he? Remember King Uzzah? His heart was lifted up in the Lord. The Lord made him very great. He thought he was so great. And the Lord was with him in everything he did. He thought he could go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. And while he stood there, the priest said, It does not pertain to thee, O King Uzziah, to be in this house. And the leprosy rose up in his face. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. That's where the priesthood came from, was Aaron. So also, Christ glorified not himself. To be made in high priest. Jesus wasn't born of Mary, grew up, turned 18, got a college handbook, and said, I'm going to take the priest classes at the local seminary and become a priest. You know, that's how most of them do it today. They're bored, they want an easy profession, and so they choose to be priests. Christ didn't do that. But, I love the Bible, just read this. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Remember, that was quoted several times in chapter 1. The God that said those words to Jesus also said these words to him. Verse 6, as he saith, saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's Jesus Christ's ordination to the priesthood. Who in the days of his flesh... Now listen to this, brethren, if you really want to get the value of Hebrews 4.16, we have the person of Jesus Christ. We have the compassion of Jesus Christ because he was tempted in all points like as we are. But I want to show you the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. His way, his ability to pray. And that he's been in a situation where he had to pray with all his might. And he knows when we're in a time of need. Because he's been in a time of need, the likes of which you and I will never get, though we were to add them together and square them. That's verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect. There's the captain of our salvation that's perfect. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Lord, for such a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh in the garden of Gethsemane, by prayers and supplications, was praying with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death who did not save him from death, but sent an angel to strengthen him. And even though he were a son, and even though he was praying to his father,
Father. He was not spared death. He died for us. He was strengthened by God to the task, and he learned obedience in the face of suffering, which is what we need to learn. And so when we go to the throne of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting there. He knows all about praying. I doubt if you have ever shed, as it were, great drops of blood in your praying. That's the context. That's the context, brethren. You want to understand 4.16? You can't just memorize it when you're six and forget about it. you got to see it in its context. Now, if we go back and get 12 very quickly, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. Who? Listen, for those of you that are new here, Hebrews 4.12 is not talking about your Bible. Your Bible isn't alive. As one of the first ministers I heard that taught me about this verse, he said if you take a boy Bible and a girl Bible and put them in a shoebox and put them in the closet and turn the lights out, you're not going to get little Bibles. Remember who said that? Conrad Gerald. It's not alive like the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. The Lord Jesus Christ can say, I am alive forevermore. Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. This isn't about the Bible. The Bible isn't our priest. Jesus is our priest. This passage goes on to say, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Such a simple text, missed by so many. How can we ever get to 416 if we're going to miss 412? Lord, help us and save us. Always be thankful for every verse He's shown us and the verses He hasn't shown us yet. Let's pray for Him to show us soon. My life's running out. I want to see more verses the Lord can show us. 412 we've known for a long time. But look at what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. He's powerful. He's sharper than a two-edged sword. He's better than any surgeon's scalpel because he can go in and divide between your soul and spirit and your joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. When you are on your knees and you can't really choke out what's hurting you inside, in your belly and breaking your heart, you can't really get the words out, don't worry about that. He's able to discern all the thoughts and intents of your heart. This text is not to drive terror into you. Hebrews 4.12 is not just for terror. This is for comfort that we have one magnificent high priest that knows us that well. Listen, no priest under the Old Testament, I don't care if it was Samuel, I don't care if it was Aaron, they couldn't do for you what the Lord Jesus Christ can do for you. He'd have to, you'd have to tell him your name again. Oh, and he'd say, what tribe were you from, daughter? What tribe were you from? Well, I'm from Ephraim. Oh, oh, I, I think I remember your daddy. Well, well, that doesn't help you any. The Lord Jesus Christ knows you, and he knows you very intimately and very personally that closely. And there's nothing hid from him. He knows about all your enemies. He knows about your health. He knows about your family. He knows about your finances. He knows about everything that you're dealing with. There's no creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and opened unto him. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Our high priest is on the right hand of God. Jesus, the Son of God, that is the explanation for what the Word of God was in 4.12. Seeing then, based on what I've just said in 12 and 13, we know it's Jesus, the Son of God. Isn't that precious? Thank you, Lord. Let us hold fast our profession. Now, do you believe me that there was a parenthesis? What did 3.6 say? Holding, Holding our confidence and our rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, 3.6 
Now we get to 414. Let us hold fast our profession. We are back to the Lord Jesus Christ being our priest. He encouraged them in the first few verses of chapter 3 with consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Now he's considering the apostle and high priest of our profession. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hebrews, don't go back. Don't go back. We've got the greatest high priest ever. Look at him. Look at him in comparison to Aaron or any other priest. Four, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Look at the hopeful aspect of the passage. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's always the fear of a man when he goes and confesses to another man, this man isn't going to understand. This man isn't going to appreciate. This man isn't going to be able to empathize with me. This man won't be able to relate to me in my situation. For we have not an high priest which cannot, two negatives, make a positive. We have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. I don't know anything else I can say to add. And I wish I could say it better. So I come to the 16th verse. Let us therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. It's therefore. Verses 12 through 15. Especially verse 15. That says our high priest can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let an imperative causative verb. That is a commandment. It's used three times in chapter 4. Before we get to the 16th verse, it's in verse 1, it's in verse 11, it's in verse 14. Let us therefore fear, lest they promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. This is an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. And as I said earlier, I know when I repeat myself most of the time, and it is not a description of those who are great saints. It is a command for all saints. It's a command for you, children, women, men. It's not a minute. This is not a pastoral epistle. This is for all the saints of God. Let. Let. There's a causative verb that's imperative. Do this. It's Paul's style, especially in this chapter. It's the fourth occurrence of that combination of words. Let. You say, why does he use it? Why doesn't he just say, come boldly? Because Paul wants to use a gentler approach by saying he's, he's going to be in there with you. Let us. Let us. He's not going around all the time ordering you. He's saying, let us. Because you know what? If anybody needed help between the Hebrews and Paul, it was Paul. (laughs) Let us. Therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Oh, you know what it's there for. And I've already said that. The us are the children of God. The throne of grace is not open to the wicked. The Did we get a letter from India that understood that clearly? Wow. He understood that clearly, didn't he? For those of you that read that last night, let us. The Lord's face, his eyes, and his ears are open under the cries of the righteous, but his face is against the wicked. They shall call upon me, and I will not answer. Let us. This is for you and me. Therefore, because we have such a merciful and perfect captain of our salvation and such a perfect high priest, you can go to him with any need and he is going to be the most wonderful Savior possible to make intercession with you to Almighty God for your needs. 
let us therefore. Everything that we've covered. He was made like us. He calls us brethren. He was tempted. He suffered temptation so that he could succor them that are tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we are, but yet without sin. He can see right into our souls and divide between soul and spirit. He knows everything that we're facing. He's the son of the Father, and he's sitting next to the Father because he's passed into the heavens. He's crowned with glory and honor. What more do you want of a priest? Let us therefore come. It's not going to happen without you doing something. This is a practical phase of salvation. Let us therefore come. You've got to go someplace so that you can come to that place. Let us therefore come. You know, the apostle uses the word come because it's not far away. Even though it's in heaven. Because all you have to do is drop to your knees. And even you can drop to your knees in your own heart and mind and be before the throne of God. Let us come. You have to go someplace. David said, Lord, now he had more of a restriction than we do. Lord, send out thy light and thy truth and lead me to thy tabernacles. Because they were in one place in Israel. You had to make it to Shiloh before Jerusalem. And then after Shiloh, you had to make it to Jerusalem in order to be in the temple of God and to see his altar. I can see his altar right now. Can you see his altar right now? Even though I'm looking at you, brother, I can see his altar right now. Because we're in the presence of God. This is God's habitation by the Holy Spirit. And we know that our prayers by faith, we can lay hold of the fact that Almighty God is sitting on His throne and in His right hand is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can run straight to that throne. Let us therefore come. You've got to go to it. We must move from our worldly environment to a heavenly environment. You've got to shut down the activities of your life and take a moment to quiet your soul. Be still and know that I am God and there you are. At his altar, before his throne. You've got to go to it, though. But it only takes a second. Nehemiah could go to it while he was bearing the king's cup. And he had been, he'd never been sad before in the king's presence. And he's bearing the king's cup and he's sad. And the king says, why are you sad? That was a death sentence. You know what he said? I feared greatly and I prayed. He was in the presence of God. And he didn't have a savior standing next to him. As Brother Eric pointed out earlier, we're better off than David. We're better off than Nehemiah. Now the Son of David is there for us. Let us therefore come, brethren, come from the end of the earth. We can go to the throne room of Almighty God, according to David in Psalm 61. We do this by His worship. Here we are in the presence of God, with His altar figuratively that's in heaven. We do it by His Word. When we open His Word and read His Word, look at what He's just told us in these verses about going to His altar where Jesus Christ is. We do it by prayer. We drop to our knees. We can drive our vehicles and be in the presence of God. By separating ourselves from all the confusion and distractions around us so we can put ourselves in His presence. Oh, brethren, come! Come! It's a commandment. Jesus tells you, come! Esther... Esther had to ask for prayer and fasting three days and three nights to go to the throne of her husband. After three days and three nights of fasting by Esther and all her maidens and the Jews that were in Shushan where the palace was and by Mordecai, her uncle, she came and she stood in the doorway. And she had a moment of life or death. And Ahasuerus raised his scepter. And said, what can I do for you? Let me do one better. The throne of grace. 
You don't have to fast for three days and three nights and go in fear and stand there wondering if you're going to be killed or if you're going to live. You can go running through the hallways screaming, Daddy, 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 straight into the throne room and fling yourself at his feet and he'll never turn you away. I wish I could tell you about it. How does he want you to come? Boldly. And that there's no other place to go. He wants you to come knowing that there's no other place to go. I've got, I got a whole, I know what I'm going to do. I know, I know what I got to do. I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 14 with me. Thank you, Lord, for answering my dilemma. Hosea. Daniel, Hosea, chapter 14. My children in here. Not, all, you, all you children is what I mean. All you children and all you youth. I am sorry to tell you something. But living happily ever after, in the world sense of those words, is a lie. Now by faith, you can live happily ever after. If you'll hold your confidence fast, and if you'll hold your rejoicing of hope firm unto the end, you can live happily ever after. But I want to tell you that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And he chooses a different set of them for each of us. But the Lord will deliver you out of them all. And I am preaching this so that you will know where to go in your life when you are in trouble and you are pained, and you have guilt, and you have fear, and you have loss, that you will know where to go, and how to go, and what's going to happen if you go right. and how. You... That's why we're in Hebrews 4.16. I want to give you the throne of grace. Because the Lord's given it to us, and He's commanded us to use it. And He's commanded us to use it boldly. Here's going to the throne of grace. Hosea 14, 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Whenever you sin, children and youth and all of us, whenever we sin, run through the hallways. Run through the hallways crying, Daddy, Daddy, I'm sorry. That's all he asks. I heard in a prayer this morning, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why did our first father hide in the trees of the garden with the holy God that had created him walking in the path of the garden and would not come out and confess his sin, but instead blamed the woman? Instead tried to cover up his guilt and shame with fig leaves. Don't ever do that. Don't say, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Don't try to cover it with any righteousness because our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Run through the hallways and find the throne room. And it's easy to find. 
It's behind every door. He'll forgive you. The scepter is up. It doesn't need to come up. It's up. Hebrews 4.16 is to tell you the scepter is up. Forgive me for interrupting Hebrews, I mean Hosea 14. Verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Israel, get into the palace and find the throne room. For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words. Don't bring sacrifices. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. A throne of grace. Receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. That's another God that competed for the worship of the Israelites. Asher shall not save us. That's Assyria. They couldn't save them. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. We don't need a cavalry. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless find mercy. O Lord God, this is what Israel was supposed to say. In thee the fatherless find mercy to obtain mercy. Remember, we go to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. That's why I'm using this and there's other texts that are just as good as this. But this is precious. Receive us graciously. In thee the fatherless find mercy. I will. Here's the Lord on his throne. Now this is one better than Ahasuerus raising his scepter. Bless his heart. This is one better. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Does that sound like prosperity to you? Is that fantastic? Is that help in the time of need? And they were guilty. They were the guilty ones. And this is, this is how you come to the throne of grace. We shall have much more, much more to say about it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.